In this week's show, we will go through one of the comments from our previous guest, James Tabor, regarding the history of Jewish Christianity, which we discussed in our previous show. We will also present my book, Heirs of the Kingdom, the Jesus Movement's relationship to Second Temple Judaism, as we continue our conversation on the subject. During our interview, Dr. Tabor mentioned that the Jesus Movement, as well as early rabbinical Judaism, were influenced by Greek thought, which is known in scholarly circles as Hellenism. In the way that they framed things, they were already discussed in their apocryphal and prophetic books. What came to the forefront in our conversation is that he said that this was a very common occurrence, and it's not as is depicted in my book and others, that Judaism was pure at that time, uh, being Hebraic and Middle Eastern in its scope, but it had been going through a process of reframing and restructuring to fit the modes of thinking of the Greco-Roman world of their time. I believe that this is true, and you can see that in the different schools um, of rabbis, or what they would call proto-rabbis before Jesus, which gave rise to different pharisaical approaches. What needs to be considered is that taking concepts from other cultures was an ongoing thing that happened. You can look back at the Canaanite ideas that were incorporated into uh, Israelite theological concepts, the Babylonian, Egyptian, Assyrian concepts, they were also integrated. But the idea that their worldview was completely changed is something that I would like for you guys to consider yourselves based on the evidence expressed by Dr. Tabor in the following clip uh, as compared to my book, which discusses the subject uh, in depth. Stay tuned for a conversation with Dr. James Tabor regarding the Hellenization of uh, Jewish concepts discussed in the New Testament and my book in its complete uh, version for our radio audience, Heirs of the Kingdom, narrated by, uh, I've been using this AI voice, uh, his name is Daniel, he's a British narrator. I'm hoping that for eloquence and directness of the process you guys enjoy that version of the book i will have the book also narrated by me pretty soon available as well thank you and my understanding from my teacher jonathan smith and also uh, i would say jacob neusner would hold this position as well the great scholar of rabbinic Judaism or Pharisaic Judaism, that Judaism's the most Hellenized religion in the Mediterranean world or just as Hellenized as any others. And it doesn't have to do with whether you eat meat offered to idols or whether you uh, follow the Torah or don't follow the, follow the Torah according to a certain interpretation of observance. It has to do with your whole expanded worldview, your cosmos, which is now populated, which is now populated by all these levels of heavens and powers. Paul calls them uh, the stoicheia to cosmo, the uh, tutelary powers of the universe, and there come there this belief of these levels of heaven and all kinds of forces above the lower earth that we live in end up being part of Gnosticism later and, and Christian belief in general. And it's, it's, a, it's a mark of Hellenization. In other words, the Greek magical... In other words, the Greek magical papyri with the cosmology that is sketched out in some of that material. For example, in my book, I have a book called Paul's Ascent to Paradise. And when Paul talks about having ascended through the heavens to the throne of God, 
and hearing things unutterable. Uh, this is not just some, it's not like getting on a train and taking a trip. It's a journey that is fraught with all kinds of danger. We have many texts about this. So Paul is Hellenized in that he's living within a new cosmos that is vastly expanded. There's what he calls principalities and powers and heights and depths. Heights refers to all the angelic levels of the seven heavens. Depths refers to these underworld chthonic powers in the world of the dead. And he believes Christ has conquered all of those and ascended to heaven and now, you know, reigns supreme in the cosmos. And if you connect yourself to him, you can have that same kind of uh, freedom and ability but it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, in rabbinic sources, which are also talking about the same thing, we have the tradition of four rabbis that ascend to heaven, and it goes very badly for three of them. And for one of them, Akiva, uh, he comes back okay, like Paul did. So this, this idea of going up to the heavens is fraught with danger. And I would call all of that a mark of Hellenism. So in that sense, I, I just have a broader definition. Uh, Hellenism, to me, is the cosmic view of the expanded universe where the heavenly world is the true home of the soul, and this earth is a material lower world that we want to escape from. So any religion begin, that begins to buy into that uh, there, therefore, an earthly temple, like the earthly temple of Jerusalem, still standing up to 70 AD, that would be like in the book of Hebrews, a mere shadow of the true temple in heaven. Well, what do you find in the book of Revelation? In chapter 11, heavens are open, there's lightning and thunder and an earthquake, and the veil of the true temple in heaven is opened, and the Ark of the Covenant is revealed. Now, that's nothing about the Ark of the Covenant on earth, and the, there was never even an Ark of the Covenant, as you know, in the Second Temple, uh, Herod's Temple, or any of the temples from 515, 520 BCE, when the Jews returned and rebuilt the temple. It was an empty uh, house, really, and there's not the tradition that in most, uh, I don't know, you'll have to correct me here, I, I don't think there are many texts that that believe that Herod's temple had the uh, the Shekinah or the Kavod dwelling in it, but it was there for God to come back to. You know, that was kind of the, the line that would be used. But uh, the heavenly temple in the book of Revelation is very similar to the book of Hebrews. So it really depends on what you're talking about. If you're talking about what should I eat, what should I buy from the marketplace? Should I circumcise my male children? Should I observe the Sabbath day and the festivals? Should I follow some kind of Jewish calendar? Should I, you know, do anything that we consider even today to be observing Judaism as a Jew? I don't think those are the marks of Hellenism because you could do all those in the ancient world before any Hellenic, Hellenistic ideas are becoming widespread. Uh, there's the ancient Near Eastern cosmos, which is the flat earth with the canopy of the sky above it, and then God is in the third heaven above. And that's a fair, in that universe, everything's in place. Like you don't belong in heaven. You're not trying to get up there with God. There's no text in the Hebrew Bible that says, you need to go up there and be with God, and that will be salvation for you. Salvation is God bringing rescue and healing and wholeness to this earth by restoring the people of Israel and turning all nations to the worship of the one God of Israel. And that's the vision you get in Isaiah 2. The nations come up to Jerusalem. They learn the Torah. And they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And finally, in Isaiah 11, it's the Messianic era, and the earth is full of the 
Knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Zechariah 14, the Lord will be king of, over all the earth. Those are not Hellenistic ideas. You're in the world of Hellenism when you're down here on the lower earth and you're being afflicted by some demonic forces and therefore you need an exorcist. Or you, and that could involve anything from sickness or some sort of disabilities, bad luck, uh, curses, things that we usually call magic in the ancient world, but it's not magicians' tricks like it would be today. These are forces that operate in the cosmos, and you need to have the power to overcome them. So I believe that Paul. When people ask me, well, did Paul leave Judaism and become Hellenized? I would say the question is invalid. There's leaving Judaism to be Hellenized is not a direction that you take, because if you're Jewish, you're already Hellenized, meaning the fundamental insight of Hellenism is this expanded, vast universe in which Human souls belong in the world above, and salvation means getting saved and getting uh, immortalized in the world above. And the more you uh, give up a earthly kingdom, as it was called, you know, a kingdom of God on earth, that was seen increasingly as something uh, Jews would want who have not bought into this uh, Hellenistic view. Uh, they would want, you know, the 12 tribes regathered and the temple rebuilt and all of that. Uh, that's, that's increasingly left behind by the Jesus followers. So the difference between James, let's say the brother of Jesus, who's very observant, we think, of Jewish law, and Paul would be that James thinks Paul should keep doing those things because he's a Jew. And what he's telling his converts is just fine because they're not Jews. And I don't think it has to do with Hellenism. It has to do with that question of to what degree should non-Jews be observant of Torah? And the answer in Judaism is they can become righteous Gentiles. Remember, Noah's not a Jew. And by the way, Abraham's not a Jew. So I know rabbis dispute that today, but, you know, he, he doesn't have the Torah of Moses. Uh, it wasn't given at that time. So so does that address some of what you were thinking? If not, just come at me again. <laughs> Thank you. In the last few minutes, uh, Dr. Tabor, have you done any research into the Gabriel Revelation? In it, it discusses martyrs as holy ones that rated majesty. What is the role of martyrdom in the book of Revelation? Yes, the I have done quite a bit on it. Israel Knoll is a personal friend of mine. We've been together a number of times in the United States and Israel. And uh, the main attention, first of all, I, I don't think it's a forgery. Uh, I've examined it uh, up close, uh, not just the replica. And... Uh, it just doesn't seem to me to have the marks of a forgery. It's very difficult to read and decipher and make much sense of because it's uh, fragmented and some of the writing is faded. The thing that got the most attention, as you know, and that's why I guess it was called the Gabriel Revelation, was the possibility that one of the lines might read... Uh, a Messiah being slain and after three days rising, that his flesh would be like dung on the ground and after three days he would be raised up. Uh, my understanding now is that Dr. Knoll is also wondering if that's still the reading he would support. I rather like that and actually wrote a lot of things about it and accepted it in a couple of books of mine, so I kind of don't want to give it up. But I'll tell you the part that relates to what you asked that is most important. Israel Knoll has another book, which he calls The First Messiah. Wait. Yeah. No, is it The First Messiah or The Messiah Before Jesus? Sorry. Before Jesus. 
the Messiah before Jesus, right? You know. So Israel Knoll has another book called The Messiah Before Jesus that was published right at the turn of our millennium as we went into the year uh, 2000. And Michael Wise, the same year, published a book called The First Messiah. And the books are about the same thing, not the same figure, because neither of them know who the Messiah is. But they're talking about the teacher in the Dead Sea Scrolls who anticipates his own suffering and death as a redemptive act of martyrdom and salvation. In other words, the suffering servant idea. Well, I find their arguments, both of their arguments, as, as very, very convincing. And this is before the Maccabean period. In other words, they both date the teacher of righteousness, as he's called, and they're using Messiah in a... <clears throat> they're using the term Messiah in a very generic sense, just meaning a redemptive figure anointed by the Spirit. Whether he's anointed by the oil by a prophet or not uh, is irrelevant. Uh, the Dead Sea Scroll group had very cosmic views of, of the heavenly world. And so what they argue is that the teacher, as he's called, the right teacher, I, I would translate it more as the true teacher. He's the right teacher. He's a prophet like Moses. But to him, all the mysteries of God's prophets are revealed. And he knows that he must go through this terrible suffering and be rejected and despised in order to receive the gifts that he's been given. And where you find this written in the first person by the teacher, we think, is in a document called the Thanksgiving Hymns. In Hebrew, it's called the Hodayot. And in some of the hymns, particularly, let's say, numbers 9 through maybe 20, they're numbered, it's, it's their first person, and we call them the teacher hymns because they seem to be written by an a autobiographical figure. It talks about, I did this, and I did that, and God gave me, made me a guide to the blind, and, and so forth. So it's very, very precious material, but with it is the suffering. So the idea would be, who's like me in suffering? And that then gets picked up directly or indirectly in the book of uh, Maccabees, particularly Second Maccabees, where you have the martyrs, with very horrible, vivid accounts. Uh, unfortunately, it reminds you of October 7th. Just horrible accounts of torture. And yet a confidence that God will use their death as a testimony to his righteousness and raise the dead. And so there begins to develop this idea. Now, later, of course, we have it with the Christians as well. But I would see the book of Revelation as containing this already, so that in this pre-Christian version that I've tried to extract, you would have the Jewish view of martyrdom. And I don't really see the Christian view as different. In this week's show, we continue our discussion of the first century Jesus movement and its Jewish origin. The following presentation is from my book, Heirs of the Kingdom, Jewish Christianity's Relation to Second Temple Judaism. The focus of this project is the Jesus movement's theological relation to what is known as Second Temple Judaism. The New Testament is the foundation of Christianity and is a set of writings of the sectarian group known as either the Jesus Movement, or the Kingdom of God Movement in scholarly circles. More importantly, these texts are enigmatic documents filled with perplexing accounts of theological concepts and proclamations. As a Sephardic Jew growing up in Latin America, I have always been puzzled by the devotion of Jesus' followers to this day. As I have researched his early disciples, I have asked myself the following question. Can the religious models for behavior and belief depicted in these texts ever line up with Judaism? Most people know that Jesus was a Jew and his apostles were Jews, but do they understand 
why they were persecuted and rejected by their brethren. In recent years, scholars have learned that this minority group was made of different camps that had diverse views about religious practices, and we have limited knowledge of the extent of their relationship with the greater Jewish nation. This program is a historical reconstruction of what is known as Jewish Christianity, based on available sources. To discern the most accurate interpretation of their teachings, we must explore the religious identity of the early Jewish followers of Jesus, who were part of the ethno-religious civilization known as Israel in the first century. In the past half a century, scholars such as Flusser, Vermes, Sanders, Chilton, and Bultmann have written much about the Jewishness of Jesus. However, at this time, the Jewishness of Jesus' followers can still be debated. Books about the so-called parting of the ways and the disputed term Jewish Christianity are numerous, as they document the spiritual worldview held by Jews during the Roman occupation of Israel and how it influenced Rabbinic Judaism and early Christianity. However, most people believe that the only thing that these world religions share is a foundation consisting of common texts. During the Second Temple period, religious and mystical trends were broadly defined and different groups influenced each other in many ways. With these factors in mind, and based on the data available, I will support the following contention. It is possible to reconstruct a Jewish-Christian theology that is aligned with Second Temple period Judaism. In the following program, we will discuss three documents, the Book of Revelation, the Testament of Solomon, and the Didash. By examining the influence of Jewish mysticism and Jewish law described in these spiritual works, we can discover a form of what some scholars call non-Paulinian or Jamesian Christianity. It is difficult to label the writers or editors of these ancient documents since specific terms might not always apply. In the book, The Ways That Never Parted, Reed and Becker express the following. There is a broad range of regional and cultural variation in the encounters between different biblically-based religious groups, including Jews and Christians, but also those so-called Jewish Christians and Judaizers, who so strain the dichotomous definitions of modern scholarship. Many scholars believe that early Christians were a sect of Judaism. We must consider the evidence behind this assertion. As we learn more about the historical Jesus movement, it is clear that it did not develop in a vacuum and was part of the Jewish world of the first century. Terminology In the book The Dead Sea Scrolls Uncovered, Eisenman and Wise write the following. We cannot really speak of Christianity per se in Palestine in the first century. The word was only coined, as Acts 11.26 makes clear, to describe the situation in Antioch in Syria in the fifties of the present era. Later it was used to describe a large portion of the overseas world that became Christian, but this Christianity was completely different from the movement we have before us, well not completely. Another scholar, Jonathan A. Draper, in the book Jewish Christianity Reconsidered, believes if we apply terms such as Judaism, Jew and Jewish, to the early followers of Jesus, we are assuming that their practices are in line with later Rabbinic Judaism's definitions of these terms. However, Joshua D. Galloway disagrees with this premise, stating, Jews traditionally do not trace their roots only as far as the Rabbinic period, as if this were the time when they ceased being ethno-geographic Judeans and became religious Jews. The following theoretical model will help us uncover clues about how early Jewish Christians were connected to other forms of Judaism. Lawrence Schiffman's book, Qumran and Jerusalem, Studies in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the History of Judaism proposes five reasons. The community of Qumran was similar to other types of Judaism during the Second Temple period. For instance, they had a strong sense of ritual purity. They believed that any Jew could join their group and become pure through their distinct rituals. They also thought that violators of the covenant 
were welcomed back to the fold through a process of repentance. They had a similar Jewish legal system in common with other Jews of that time period, and finally, they shared the same canon of Scripture as the rest of Judaism. Lawrence Schiffman states the following, The Yachad retained a Judaism fundamentally common with that of their neighbors. We will look in turn at the following issues. 1. Purity and other sectarian markers. 2. Polemic and invective. 3. Consensus and disagreement in matters of Jewish law. 4. Shared canon of scripture. 5. Shared national aspirations and exclusivistic eschatology. That is from his book, Qumran and Jerusalem. Studies in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the History of Judaism. The same could be said about the early followers of Jesus, since Schiffman believes that the rabbinic leaders of the time period following the destruction of the temple, the Tanaim, considered them to be part of greater Israel. In our quest for evidence about the historical Jesus movement, we must keep in mind Schwartz's findings. In his book Imperialism and Jewish Society, he concludes that not always was the centrality of God, Torah, Temple, a priori as an eternal truth of Jewish identity, not contingent on changing social and political conditions. Our research this topic takes us to what is known by Christians as the last book of the New Testament, the Book of Revelation. This text, with its cryptic language, has baffled many scholars and theologians throughout the centuries. Revelation, according to John Marshall, is a Jewish-Christian apocalypse, which exhibits characteristics in line with first-century Judaism. It comprises of identifiers such as ethnic mappings, calendrical practices, food practices, circumcision, mythological narrative heritage, social boundaries and solidarities, and ritual practices. Although external evidence for the date of the Book of Revelation comes from certain Christian sources such as patristic writings, James Tabor disagrees with the common dating of the Book of Revelation. He believes that Revelation was written against the backdrop of local events in Judea in the 40s and 50s of the Common Era and has little to do with Rome and its emperors. This premise is influenced by the work of Josephine Ford, who saw John the Baptist as the author of the majority of Book of Revelation, something disputed by many scholars. However, Marshall has a similar timeline, placing its redaction during the fall of Jerusalem under the Romans. According to J.J. Collins, the Book of Revelation and some of the texts from Qumran cannot be connected in any way, making it difficult to study its origin. See, Israel Knoll proposes that parts of the Book of Revelation were fashioned with more legendary and symbolic elements, since a Jewish mythology is believed to be behind Revelation 12 and other apocalypses of that period. David Flusser considered its Christology to be highly developed, appearing to him to not come from a Jewish standpoint, but a Hellenistic perspective. Marshall, instead, views Revelation to exhibit Jewish paradigms instead of traditional Christian ones. Some of the problems that plague interpreters who attempt to find an orthodox Christology to Revelation, namely, the priority of Michael in defeating Satan's forces, Revelation 12.7.2, the lack of status differentiation between the Lamb and Moses, Revelation 15.3, and the subordination of the one like a son of man to the announcing angel, Revelation 14, 14, 19. Regarding its connection to greater Judaism, the book of Revelation emphasis on purity is shown as the followers of Jesus are depicted as wearing white robes in the heavenly kingdom, Revelation 7, 9 to 10. This perspective is similar to the community of Qumran, where the eschatological status of the righteous depends fundamentally on the absolute purity of their priests. In his book, Messiahs and Resurrection in the Gabriel Revelation, 
Canole describes how the language in the Book of Revelation is shared with the enigmatic Hazon Gabriel and the Dead Sea Scrolls, who see their martyrs as holy ones arrayed in majesty. In the article Blood and Purity, in Leviticus and Revelation, K.C. Hansen conveys the importance of ritualistic biblical language in the book of Revelation. This image of the blood of the Lamb also reverses the categorization of blood on garments as seen in Leviticus 6.27. Instead of polluting, the Lamb's blood becomes a metaphor of purification when the saints and the Word of God wash their robes in it. Leviticus 7.14.19.13 Rather than the used detergent that may splash the priest's vestments, in Revelation's description, washing one's garments in blood becomes a symbol of either purification and belonging, Revelation 7.14, or empowerment, 1 Revelation 9.13 and 12.11. Martyrdom is considered meritorious also in both the book of Revelation and the newly discovered Gabriel Revelation, showing that mystical groups such as Jewish Christians believed that laying down your life could cleanse away their sins. Frankfurter conveys the following regarding this concept. The idea of purification by means of martyrdom may be inspired by Daniel 11.35. The motif of a great tribulation became a common feature among early Jesus believers. Mark 13.19.24.2 Thessalonians 1.23 Regarding Teshuvah, sinners are welcomed back through repentance in several passages of Revelation. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Reverend 2.5 Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Revelation 2.16 Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Revelation 9.19 Although most of the NT is more agadic lesson-oriented than halakhic legally binding in nature, Revelation requires believers to keep the commandments of God, Revelation 12.17 and 14.12, and warns that nothing unclean shall enter the holy city, Revelation 21.27. The book of Revelation exhibits a similar legal system with other Jewish groups, since believers are instructed to live in strict observance of Jewish dietary laws and abstain from practices forbidden in the Torah, such as idolatry, Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 13, 7, 19, 17, 2, 7, murder, Exodus 21, 12, Leviticus 24 and 17, Numbers 35, 16, and witchcraft, Exodus 22, 17, Leviticus 20, 27. Although revelation is polemical rather than regulatory, References to the blood rituals of Deuteronomy and Leviticus convey a strong emphasis on ritual purity. Scholars have demonstrated that books such as Daniel, Enoch, the Testament of Moses, the Fourth Book of Ezra, and others influence Jewish apocalyptic works. Revelation can be seen as an interpretation of the Tanakh. Tabor shows that the many remaining references to the Messiah are generic, such as the ones in the Hebrew Scriptures. References to Joel 2.31 in our Revelation 6.12 show the apocalyptic emphasis of the day of the Lord approaching and God's vengeance being poured on the enemies of Israel. Although there is a shared eschatology in the book of Revelation with other Jewish groups, the national aspirations of the Jesus movement and his Jewish followers is more universal and otherworldly. Some of the language in the book of Revelation shares similarities with the Dead Sea Scrolls and their depiction of multiple messiahs who will reign over Israel. Scholars have suggested that the two witnesses, described in the book of Revelation as two olive trees and two anointed, are a royal messiah and a priestly messiah. Although a historical reconstruction of the text shows that it is a composite of diverse Jewish apocalyptic writings as well, 
Jewish-Christian traditions, similar language is used in later Jewish sources, such as Pesikta Rabati, 36 and 37, which call King Meschiach our true Messiah, or Messiah of Righteousness, as Revelation 3.14 and 19.11 relates the title, Faithful and True, to Jesus. The book of Revelation appears to convey a different Jesus. From other New Testament passages, this eschatological ruler is dissimilar to the humble and meek Jesus of in later texts. Garber explains this further. In the book of Revelation, Christ is depicted as a warrior, which Christians believe him to be, whose origins are as a warrior God. It is logical that Jesus, like his father, is a warrior. Testament of Solomon Magical Theological Mysticism Another mystical work known as the Testament of Solomon, T. Sol, is an enigmatic treatise focused on demonology in which King Solomon is able to control spiritual forces through a special ring. In this text, demons assist him in the building of the temple, the Book of Wisdom, attests to this notion as well. To help us understand the history of this source for Jewish-Christian theology, we must turn to Klutz's reconstruction of the text's development. Stage 1. Sometime between the middle of the Hellenistic Age and the middle of the 1st century CE, the earliest form of the zodiacally structured document now preserved in a Testament of Solomon 18 is produced. Stage 2. Between CA 75 and 125 CE, an early form of the Testament's first 15 chapters is composed. In its earliest form, it resembles Testament of Solomon 18 insofar as it shows no familiarity with Christianity and evinces a schematic structure based on astrological concepts. Stage the third, between CA 125 and 175 CE, Early versions of the two documents produced in stages I and Ayas fall into Christian hands, perhaps through the Jewish arguments for the greatness of Solomon and the superiority to Jesus. That is from the book Rewriting the Testament of Solomon, Tradition, Conflict and Identity in a Late Antique Sodopographon. It appears that Solomon was well-liked in the first century, as Josephus speaks fondly of him. In Antiquities, he declares, Now so great was the prudence and wisdom which God granted Solomon that he surpassed the ancients and even the Egyptians. In contrast, Solomon could be viewed by Christians as an archetype of Jesus. Instead, he is often vilified as an apostate king. The Testament of Solomon continues this trend by frequently. Regarding purity and other sectarian markers, the Gospels depict Jesus as having power over angelic and demonic forces, showing his reign over the spiritual realm. However, the overall theme of the Testament of Solomon is one of seeking moral purity, while fighting the urge to pursue idolatry and sexual depravity. This tale shows that although Solomon was able to repent several times, he mostly pursued self-gain and pleasure over godly things. The text serves as a warning against betraying the purposes of God. Although in the Gospels, Jesus tells the crowds about Solomon's greatness, he compares his messianic reign as more majestic than the one portrayed in Kings and Chronicles. He does this without critiquing Solomon's behavior, as the testament of Solomon does in the process of trying to convince Jewish Christians about the superiority of Jesus. The Testament of Solomon OF10 critiques magic as unwholesome as well as serving as a polemic against sexual deviance and idolatry. Similar prohibitions against these practices are conveyed in both the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible. The Testament of Solomon instead focuses on Solomon's relationship to different demons who provide him the means to cure different illnesses affecting his subjects. In the Gospels, Jesus uses his powers for healing as well on behalf of the glory of God and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. 
there is a strong correlation between other sources of Jewish tradition and the Testament of Solomon, especially as demons are depicted as responsible for many illnesses in both the New Testament, Mark 1, 23, 26, 9, 17, 29, and the Talmud, Pesachim, Manabutrui, Aboda Zara, 12b. The Talmud also presents Solomon as commanding demons to build the temple, supporting a Jewish authorship of this texts, even as it contrasts Jesus with Solomon, just like New Testament does, Luke 11.31 and Matthew 12.42. Although the Testament of Solomon does not address halacha, Jewish law, it does emphasize the avoidance of witchcraft, similar to the condemnation of pagan practices in Exodus 22.17. Chapter 13 of the, the Testament of Solomon also discusses Beelzebul, a demon mentioned in the New Testament who has kingship over the demons and is responsible for leading people toward practicing paganism. Although the narrative is filled with references to Greek mythology and the zodiac, it has an overall biblical emphasis on righteous living. The Testament of Solomon includes a shared canon of scripture with other groups as it is mostly based on the life of Solomon depicted in the Book of Chronicles. There is historical evidence that T. Sol is part of apocryphal works based on the Hebrew Bible. The anti-Jewish work known as Dialogue of Timothy and Aquila says the following, Know thou, O Jew, says Timothy, who is speaking of Solomon's apostasy, that he worshipped and sacrificed a locust to graven images. The Jew said, he did not sacrifice it, Esfadzen, but crushed it in his hand without meaning to do so. Yet this is not contained in the Book of Kings, but is written in his testament. The Christian said, That is just what confirms it, that it was not made known by means of an historian, but is ascertained from the mouth of Solomon himself. To the author of this polemical work, the testament of Solomon shows pro-Jewish sentiments being part of extra-biblical tradition. The Testament of Solomon of conveys national aspirations by depicting Jesus as a new Solomon, who comes to fulfill the work he started as one of the greatest kings of Israel. Solomon is represented at various points, especially in chapters 19 to 26, as a failure and thus as having been surpassed by the system of cosmic power, health care, and apotropaic benefits associated with the name of Jesus Christ. This is a quote from Klutz in the book Rewriting the Testament of Solomon. Tradition, Conflict, and Identity In a late antique pseudepigraphon, the new era, started by the Christian Messiah, is one not ruled by demonic activity, but by God's power manifested in Jesus. Jewish Christians' eschatology in the Testament of Solomon is similar to the book of Revelation, describing the life of believers as a battle between good and evil in opposition to pagan practices. I believe the Testament of Solomon was written at a time when Christian beliefs had not been fully defined since it only speaks of Jesus as being the Messiah, not God or an intercessor. Its narrow focus shows some antagonism toward other groups of Jews, but it is as not as intense or hateful as the Gospels appear to be. One interesting characteristic of the Testament of Solomon is how Solomon is described as a Jewish interpreter of Scripture. In the Testament of Solomon, chapter 23, verse 4, Psalm 118.22 is described in connection to the temple, opposing the typical Christian understanding attributed to Jesus. This might be a sign of inter-Jewish debate regarding the significance of this messianic figure, even among his followers. Didash a Jewish Christian halacha. The Didash is an ancient document which F. Manns has called a text of Judeo-Christian halakot. While it is believed, as it is described in Draper's book The Holy Vine of David, that it provides teaching and instructions designed to prepare Gentiles for admission to baptism and the Eucharistic meal of a community of Christian Jews. It is also very Jewish, in essence, and style. The type of congregational Christianity described in it has similarities to the Yakad of the Dead Sea that is characterized 
by an elaborate, hierarchical structure and ritual practice. This fact has been perceived as anomalous for an apo apocalyptic community, since communities that emphasize eschatology are often anti-structural and anti-ritual. Jonathan A. Draper, in the book Jewish Christianity, reconsidered, describes the Didache's development the following way. Scholars date the text as early as 5070 CE. Jean-Paul O'Day, Aaron Milavik, Michel Slee. Other scholars date it as late as 100, 110. Draper, or A. Craft, Guillet. They theorize that the text is evolved literature, which was in continuous use as a community rule, and hence was continuously edited before being subordinated to Matthew's Gospel. The Didache is interested in the purity of the members of the Jesus movement since it provides a path for them to become holy through repentance and righteous living. Similar to the passage in Matthew 7, 13, 14, the Didache supports Jesus' teaching on holy living, defining it in narrow terms. Some of the phrases often used show a desire for the faithful to partake of Jewish ritual practices. If you can bear the entire yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. Didache chapter 2a. It has been noted that the two ways paradigm has parallels with rabbinic stances on abortion, magic, and slavery. Repentance is achieved in this religious circle by avoiding the way of death. In chapter 5, the nature of a wicked existence is described in relation to the negative commandments of the Torah or harmful character traits described in the book of Proverbs, chapters 12, 6, 13, 14, 15, 4, and 18, 21. Also, a number of scholars have drawn attention to the affinity of Didach 6, 2, 3 with the apostolic decree in Acts 15. The Jewish legal system depicted in the first four chapters of the Didache is built upon some of Jesus' teachings that are the most in line with Second Temple Judaism. In the section in which Jesus relates the Shema to his followers as part of the undivided affection for God, quoting Deuteronomy 6, 4-5, he also affirmed Leviticus 19, 18, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, in the same passage. A striking difference between the Didac and the New Testament is how the golden rule appears in a negative form comparable to Hillel's teaching. Scholars have noted similarities between the Didache and the Manual of Discipline, 1 Q.S. 3.13.4.26, which shows that other communities in the Jewish world of the first century identified morality for their members by listing virtues and vices which they considered appropriate or inappropriate forms of behavior. More strikingly, Vermeer in his book Didache and Judaism deduces that there were two approaches, one for Jews and one for Gentiles, discussed in the Didache. The observance of the law in the Didachean community appears to vacillate between Pharisaic rigorism, visible in the group led by James who believed in strict observance of Mosaic prescriptions, including circumcision, and a more relaxed and less demanding approach of others. Regarding the use of the Hebrew Scriptures, Vermi's research conveys that other groups shared a similar canon. There are multiple allusions to Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, Psalms and Proverbs in the Didache, confirming to their commitment the Mosaic and prophetic writings. Jewish Christian eschatology is displayed in the Eucharistic celebration, Greek for blessing, which is similar to the original Birkat Hamazon tradition. Nowhere in the Didache is the Lord's Supper, defined with paschal imagery as in Paul's epistles, 1 Corinthians 5-7. Instead, the meals are part of an ongoing banquet celebrating the imminent kingdom of God. This framework is related how Jesus is viewed his future activities in one of the Gospels. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Mark 14.25 The Berakot, over the cup and the bread, 
are formulaic and undeveloped, as is the Didache's depiction of grace after meals. We give you thanks, our Father, for the vine of David, your child, which you made known to us through Jesus, your child. To you be glory forever. Chapter 9, 2, 3. Regarding their emphasis on Jesus' sacrifice, there is little evidence of them partaking in Eucharistic meals. Didach 14, 2. Rather, the focus is on an eschatological union between Jews and Gentiles in pleasing God through some form of pure sacrifice as depicted in the book of Malachi, Malachi 1.11. In the Didec, the community meal always concludes with the following prayers. Let His grace, i.e. Christ, draw near and let the present world pass away. Praising God, not Jesus, in their rituals, they celebrate proclaiming the arrival to the Davidic kingdom. Considering themselves to be living in the Messianic era, they expected Jesus' return in their lifetime. What is fascinating about the Didache is that, for the most part, it does not display any conflict among Jews and Christians. However, there is a disturbing passage in Didache 8.1 which speaks of the hypocrites and their fasting practices which Verme interprets as denoting inter-Jewish conflict. Draper believes that the hypocrites are a rival faction within Judaism as compared to hatred of Jews as a people. The Didach focuses on the ethical character of Jesus and his teachings as compared to the NT's emphasis on his divinity. Nowhere does one come across obvious soteriological and Christological motifs such as the Passion, Death and Resurrection of Christ. On the other hand, it has been observed that the text in Did 113a-2261 is closely related to traditional Jewish materials in T, Asher, Psimtklem, Ham, Vai, 3, 3f, 7, 1, 1f, and the sentences of pseudo-fossilides. With all this in mind, we see a clear source depicting the Jesus movement not as anti-Jewish or supersessionist, but as thoroughly Jewish with a conflictive strand that struggles with Gentile involvement. This is an interesting fact, since it is often believed that by the time of the Gospels were written, the followers of Jesus agreed on the overall message they wanted to proclaim. Counter-argument I will now turn to some of the difficulties with uncovering Jewish Christianity and some of the arguments against my premise. I believe that the mystical and legal views of the earlier followers of Jesus, which are often referred as Jewish Christians, have much in common with the community of Qumran and other subgroups. The difficulty is finding reliable information since it is hidden in texts either considered forbidden gospels or apocryphal by mainstream Christianity. In my research, I have found it difficult to take seriously authors who dismiss anti-Jewish perspectives in early Christian writings and try to reclaim some type of Christian Judaism even in the New Testament. This practice appears to have started with Danielu, who finds Judaic ideas in two very anti-Jewish Christian epistles. To him, Barnabas and I, Clement, are palpably Christian in tone and providing fragments of Jewish Christian theology of great antiquity. Moria P. Horgan points out that in reality, the Jesus movement was founded on a premise that flies in the face of my theory of Daniel O's. In her book, Pesharim, she writes the following in relation to Qumran and the Jesus movement. The Dead Sea Scrolls Interpret Berit Hadassah, New Covenant of Jeremiah 31, as a renewal of the Old Covenant, whereas Paul thought of Lane Diathik as a new dispensation, Christologically centered and replacing the Old Covenant. The Qumran community underscore the first part, verse 32, contrasting the New Covenant with that of the Fathers, Paul emphasized verses 33-34 and the internalization of Torah. With this in mind, we must conclude that the phenomenon of Jewish Christianity is more complex than what scholars such as Boyarin, Nanos, Stendhal, Sanders, Gaston, Gaja, and Stowers portray it to be.
their creative approaches to Paul undermine the Apostles' own case for Jesus' unique message, which I call apocalyptic triumphalism, and dismiss the traditional Paulinian outlook which brought about later patristic anti. Semitism and is anti-Jewish in its scope. Conclusion In conclusion, the possible writers of the three texts examined in this book cannot be ascertained due to the lack of internal evidence. However, we can see trends and ideas that were common to many groups in the first couple of centuries of our era. As discussed above, there are many commonalities between the theologies and practices of these writings, which are different from the traditional Paulinian perspectives. Another important factor which requires more research is that it appears that Jewish Christian thought was suppressed in the New Testament and church history. I believe that Ferdinand Christian Bauer was brave to challenge New Testament scholarship in his controversial book, Orthodoxy and Heresy. By exposing the many types of Christianities that originally existed and how they were hunted down by the imperial Orthodox establishment, his research allowed for other possibilities to be considered. To him, the groups who are now seen as oddities were actually the genuine versions of the Jesus movement. His premise was well accepted originally, but is now conveniently ignored in scholarly circles. In her essay, The Phenomenon of Early Jewish Christianity, Reality, or Scholarly Invention, Joan Taylor breaks down early Christians into three groups, the Circumcision Party, New Covenant Group of Paul, and the Inbetweener of Peter and James. She defines this, the Jewish Christian Church, as the creator of texts such as the Didache. However, she conveys that it is almost impossible to prove the existence of any such community due to the little evidence available. She also questions labeling such works as Jewish-Christian, since Jewish ideas were prevalent in Gentile-Christian circles of that time. I agree more with Bauer's perspective that is similar to the assertions made by David Flusser and other Jewish scholars that see the early followers of Jesus were more halakhic than Hellenistic. However, it is difficult to identify them due to limited historical sources leaving much to speculation. The following passage in the book, Jewish Sources, in Early Christianity, summarizes the difficulty in the search for Jewish Christianity. The first Jewish Christians, the disciples of Jesus, reached a state of conflict with Paul, who held a position of strength compared with the Christians of Jerusalem. Paul hardly spoke to the Jerusalem community, and he, so to say, set up Christ the Savior against the historical Jesus. The Jews were suspicious of Paul, not only because of his position concerning the commandments, but also because he adopted the Gentiles into his community with such ease. The Jewish Christians and other Jewish groups joined them in their suspicions. Among others, the sect which preceded the Ebionites known as the Nazirites also joined them. The origin of these groups is questionable due to the polemics written by the Church Fathers making it difficult for us to identity sects like the Abionites. Bauer's theories are contended by scholars, such as Hilgenfeld and Harnack, who see many of these groups as descendants of a Paulinian Jewish church. Luminen believes that there were five real groups of Jewish Christians and one invented by some of the Church Fathers. Irenaeus as Ebionites, Elkisites, Epiphanius. Ebionites, Hellenistic Samaritan Ebionites, Epiphanius Nazareans, an imaginary reconstructed version coming from Acts and Eusebius, historical Nazarenes, and Hebrews, as in the Gospel of the Hebrews. Flusser believed that we can only detect traces of Jewish Christian rituals and practices which are hidden in the Christian Apocrypha. Through my investigation, I realized that were many strands of early Christianity which wrestled with how to keep alive a Jewish identity in the midst of much turmoil. Although there are many scholarly views regarding Jesus and his followers' relationship to Judaism, I find Jezza Vermes's argument 
the most compelling. He uncovers the Jewishness of Jesus by peeling away the layers of Christian tradition. I also believe that the same approach that is currently being used for the parting of the ways should be applied to the quest for a Jewish Christianity.